Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. Um, I'm going to share with you guys from this chapter. It felt like the right timing. This seemed like where the Lord wanted me to go this week. It was impressed on my heart really early in the week, and it's a great follow-up to our study last week looking at Pentecost, as here in chapter 4, we're not long after um, both the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and what happened um, as Peter preached, and then the apostles started living out this new Holy Spirit-empowered life. Um, it was definitely a turning of the tide and a change of the situation. And so we want to look at this section in chapter 4, and I think this is going to have a lot of things for us in it. Kind of taking you through what happens, because we read chapter 2, a portion of chapter 2 last week, the beginning. Peter gives a sermon, and then we get into chapter 3. And just so you know what happened in chapter 3 that bridges in between our study time for today, Peter and John, back in chapter 3, were en route to the temple um, sometime after Pentecost. And during the hour of prayer, which is about three in the afternoon, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, they heal a man who had been born lame, he couldn't walk, and he was over 40 years old, we're told in chapter 4, verse 22. So this is a guy who um, clearly was not working, you know, physical, was not in physical therapy and just figuring out a way and finally got enough strength in his legs, and Peter just encouraged him in the right direction. Um, even the naysayers, the, the Sanhedrin could not deny that this man was completely crippled and now completely healed. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. And due to this man now being able to walk, and it says he wasn't just walking in chapter three, verse eight, he's walking, he's leaping, he's like jumping around. And this, that's pretty incredible because um, he's never done that before. Peter's given this audience because of the condition of this man now being completely broken in his legs to being healed. Now Peter has an audience to preach the gospel to. And by reading that chapter, it becomes evident that through one miracle, God presented an even greater opportunity. And I think that there's a, a miniature lesson. Here's your miniature lesson from the introduction. Your miniature lesson is this. God uses miracles and these amazing things that happen as avenues for the gospel to be preached, as avenues for people's souls to be saved. And if all we're concerned about is physical healing, then we're asking God to fix a physical body that's going to break again and die. I mean, we don't, we don't just want to see people be healed. We do want to see them be healed, but we want to see them be healed in a way that glorifies God and gives opportunity to the gospel. And so that's exactly what happens. It leads to something far greater than a man's physical body being healed. 5,000 men were told, give their lives to the Lord. After Peter preaches another bomb sermon, you know, like you read the first couple sermons by Peter in, in Acts and you're like, that's how I want to preach, you know, like, cause these people are just responding in amazing ways. By the way, the X factor is not Peter's amazing exegesis. Um, you're like X, what you can look it up later. It's not that Peter has this amazing style. It's the empowering of the Holy spirit. That's why Peter was so effective. He was filled with the Holy spirit, which is why we prayed for that last week. So here's the thing. Things take a turn in chapter four. All this great stuff happened. 5,000 people get saved. You're like, wow, the church is really percolating now. Like it's really starting to grow. I'm sorry. Do you not like that word? Should I pick it up? The church is growing people. So the church is getting bigger. It's growing a lot. Ellie just gave me a weird look. I was like, I'm sorry. It's percolating. <laughs> so you think that this is just the time where, you know, happy ever after happens, right? But it doesn't. Things take a turn. Peter and John get arrested. For what they did, they get arrested by the temple police because basically they annoyed the religious leaders. They annoyed specifically the Sadducees we see in chapter four, verse one, because they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And the message of the gospel is that our savior is what we say it on Easter all the time. He's risen. 
he's risen from the dead, and everyone on the other side of this camera, like, he is risen indeed. But like, that's that's the thing. He is risen. And so, if you are talking to people who don't believe in bodily resurrection, like the Sadducees, your message of of salvation is really going to annoy them, especially when that many people respond to it. You're going to create enemies instantaneously. And so, Peter doesn't mess around with them in the way he preaches. In verses 8 through 12 of chapter 4, not only in the face of the Sadducees, but to the very face of the people who condemned Jesus to death. Remember, we're not that far removed from crucifixion and from Jesus being condemned by the Jewish council. To the Jewish council, he concludes what he's saying in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 4. This Jesus, Peter speaking, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Those are powerful words to say to people who just killed the person you're talking about. And they couldn't keep him dead. But, but that's a powerful thing to say to them. The, the members of the council are so shocked by Peter's boldness, and they should be. I don't know how many of them were aware of his denial, his threefold denial. I don't know how, how many of them were aware of Peter's horrible failure the night Jesus was betrayed. But regardless of their knowledge of that or not, they're still amazed that this guy is speaking this boldly, that Peter's being this bold with them. Ordinary men, no special training in the scriptures. They just have one qualification. They have one qualification, and it's this. Verse 13 says, they recognize them as men who had been with Jesus. That's what qualified them. Spending time with Jesus. These guys were seen with him. They had been with him. They had listened to him. They had learned from him. They'd been rebuked by him. They'd been encouraged by him. They had spent time in the presence of Jesus. Church, be guilty of this same association. Be guilty of that accusation. If someone walks up and says, you know what? You've been spending time with Jesus. That's what you want. That's what you want. You want people around you to be like, have you been spending a long time with Jesus? Because it looks like it. That's a good thing. That's what we're going for. Let it be known by your closest friends, your faintest acquaintances, that you are with Jesus, that you are for Jesus, that you are alive because of Jesus. Everyone in your life that has come in contact with you needs to know this. Because it doesn't come down to how many years you spent in Bible college. It doesn't come down to how many consecutive Sundays you've been in church. It comes down to, are you with Jesus? Have you been spending time with Jesus? You realize that one hour every Sunday, once a week, does not qualify you to be with Jesus. That just makes you a religious participant, which is good. It's good to practice pure religion. It's good to go to church, but that cannot be the whole of your relationship with Christ. That's like me saying I spend an hour with my wife once a week. We have a healthy relationship. No, it doesn't work like that. Your wife would be like, boo, that doesn't work. Like that, it's, it's, not, it's not accurate. You have to spend more time than that. Are we that way with the Lord? By the way, guys, just as a note, if your wife's like, you hear that, Harold? Here's the thing. You should be spending more time with Jesus if you love your wife. Because you want to be more like Christ in the way you treat her. And she's going to be much in a much easier position being your wife if you are more Christ-like. So spend time with Jesus and spend time with your wife and spend time with your kids. Prioritize these things. It's biblical. There's no denying that the man standing there, back to the story, quick segue. 
There's no denying that the man standing here with them had been healed. The council's faced with this decision. They're like, these guys have been with Jesus, and that guy's been healed. There's no denying. So they simply threaten them. You know, it's always nice to be threatened. They just threaten and say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Peter and John's response. Do you think God wants us to obey you or him? I love that response. It's beautiful. They're like, we can't stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. We cannot stop speaking about it. It's too impactful. It's life-changing. It's the truth. We cannot but speak of it. The council threatens them further, but lets them go because there's no way to punish them at this point. There's nothing they can do to them. The, the, the crowd around is praising God because of what's happened to this, this man. And so there's nothing they can do. They don't want to cause a riot. So they're like, just shut up about Jesus, okay? Just don't talk about Jesus and we'll be fine. And the apostles are like, no, right? So there's going to be issues. There's going to be further tension. And in light of that, in a world that they recognize that their time is going to be filled with tension and suffering and persecution at the hands of those who disagree with them, they do not ask God to remove them from that situation. They do this. Look at verse 23. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They go and they report all the things that were said to them. So since the resurrection of Christ, this would likely be what was threatened against them, the first persecution that had risen up against the church. Both the imprisonment of Peter and John, who had spent a night in jail and then brought before the council. Um, it was a brief imprisonment. And the subsequent threats. This is really the first form of persecution that's coming up against them that we know about. Now, understand, I think, understand the context of the threats is important. The religious leaders were threatening them, and they were serious about it. And the seriousness of their threats comes from what they did to Jesus already. We already knew what they were capable of. So they weren't wondering, like, do you really think they'll follow through? Not only had they seen what they did to Jesus and how they treated him, but they also um, have been told by Christ about this. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, right? And he says this in John chapter 15. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. They know what to expect, not just because they've seen it, but Jesus told them ahead of time. He told them before he was put to death that this would happen. So what's the church to do? What does the church do when there's going to be a clear resistance to their path? Church, I believe we're going to meet clear resistance. I believe that our world, so long as it continues to reject Jesus, will get morally worse. I think that's a logical conclusion to come to. And it's not because this is my plan and this is, this is my way of doing things. This is what the Lord has said. This is what biblical study teaches us. And this is what history has taught us. The, the farther south we go, the farther um, bereft of morality we become, the worse our world is going to get when it comes to the church. They're going to disdain light. They're not going to like good. You know, if you leave people to themselves and to their own ways, as in judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes, any form of correction is an offense and gross and needs to be dealt with to them. And so I believe that the church will continue to experience seasons of persecution. I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm not God. But I know this. We are going to have to face legitimate threat. Legitimate threat just like they did. So how do they handle it? 
How did the early church handle that legitimate threat? Look at verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. It's a good way to start. God, you made everything. So anything that's happening here is, first of all, within your sight, within your grasp, within your control. And so we recognize you as sovereign. They lift their voices together to God. When there is legitimate threat to the body of Christ by culture, we would do well to note what the early church did. We do not fight back. We turn to God. We turn to God. We stand for truth. We stand for the gospel, but we turn to God and we ask him for empowerment. But before they do that, they turn to God as their first step. Step one is turning to him, unifying in the face of a threat, realizing that we're one body, we're one family, we're saved by our one savior. And so we're brought together under his leadership. But the second thing that they do is they recognize where true power lies. They recognize where true power is. Our God is sovereign, supreme in authority and power, the maker of all things. And when we recognize all that he's done, is doing and can do, we then look at what he said. We recognize who he is. We recognize what he can do. Now let's look at what he has said. Look at verse 25. We'll read down through verse 28. Continuing on in Acts 4. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant. Now they're going to say, we recognize what you have said over us. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, now they get real with what they've seen currently. In this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will have predestined to take place. David speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit is quoted here from Psalm 2 verses 1 through 2 when it says, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. It foretold the efforts of both Jewish and heathen powers to come against the Savior, and not just the Savior, but they said, we recognize this is going to continue on to his people. If Jesus is the head of a body, then attack upon Christ will also come to the whole body. It's going to come for the whole group, the whole unified group. And it's it's talking in this, in this passage about how the Jewish and the Gentiles, all these people are kind of linked together to come against anyone who rejects Christ as Messiah, against the church, Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, all unite against Jesus, the Lord's anointed one. Now, don't miss verse 28. Verse 28 is very important. To do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is something we could easily miss. They did things that God had planned. They did things that he had predestined to take place. When we're talking about Jesus, his death was no accident. If you read the Gospel of John, this is made apparent by, by John's writing over and over and over again because he keeps pointing our attention to Jesus' time having not yet come. Jesus, you know, people are threatening him, they're mad at him, they want to grab him and throw him off a cliff, and he just walks through the crowd and leaves. I believe it's John chapter 8. I think that's, that's the chapter. But he just walks right through the crowd. See ya. 
You know, and they're like, well, we're here to kill him. Where's Jesus? You know, he ducks out and he's gone. It's not because Jesus has some like cloaking device, you know, he's gone. It, Jesus got out of the crowd. And the reason why they weren't allowed to apprehend him and put him to death then is his time had not yet come because God has specific time. God has specific place and he has specific way that this was going to happen. It was God's plan. Peter spoke early um, in Acts 2, the chapter we studied last week, uh, further along from the passage that we studied in, in his sermon, uh, verses 23 through 24, during Pentecost, he said this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's a powerful passage, but I want to point your attention to one key factor here. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, not man. The foreknowledge and plan of God. Christian, not just my son, but Christians in general, do you feel that the circumstances you face are beyond your control? Do you feel like the world that you live in is beyond your control? Take a deep breath. It is. And that's okay. It's okay that it's not in our control. We freak out all the time because we don't have control of our circumstances because we don't have control over the world that we're in. Maybe it's something going on in our family. Maybe it's something that's going on in our, in our city. Maybe it's something that's going on in our nation, our world. We don't have control over some of these things. There are things that God has given us to um, either steward or people to shepherd. There are things that we are given responsibility for. But here's the thing. You are not in control. I am not in control. And that's really good news for us. Because if I was in control, I would mess this up. I would make a mess of everything. But we recognize that God is in control. And if he had a plan, a definite, clear plan for Jesus, he has a definite, clear plan for us, church. It's up to us to show up for work. It's up to us to show up and get the job done. To not fight evil with evil, but to be kind in return. To not revile as Jesus did not revile in return. For us to show mercy and grace in times where we're being accused and attacked. The world is doing right now what it chooses. What it chooses to be right. And I believe that we are living in times that are very similar to the times of the judges. Whenever man is doing what's right in his own eyes. Because that's why our world is in chaos. Not only is that the condition we're in right now, but this has been happening for a while. We stand on a false pretense thinking that we've always been doing things right up until this point, And all we need to do is get back to where our nation was founded. Sorry, read your history books. We don't want to go back there. We want kingdom of Christ to come. Because mankind has been messed up since the garden. Sin has been an issue since the garden. America was never a utopia. America was never perfect. We've always had blood on our hands, and we need Jesus to cleanse us of our sin. That is a fact. I'm not longing to go back to where we were. I want Jesus to rule. I want his kingdom to come. Every Christian for, should long for that. And our freedoms in this country are a blessing to us, and we should vote, and we should be a part of what goes on in our nation so long as we're given that. But our allegiance is not to America. Our allegiance is to Jesus. You can take my nationality away, but you cannot take my Savior away. 
You can take my physical freedoms away, but you cannot take my soul out of the hands of the living God. I hope you're amening right now because that's important. We need to understand that, especially right now. I love my country. I love Jesus more. The world's doing what's right in its own eyes. It sees autonomy from God. It's reestablishing its own definition of what right and wrong is. This has been the curse of mankind since sin entered. Does any of this surprise God? Is God shocked? Is God sitting back right now like, oh, I can't believe these people are doing this. He knew. He saw it. He sees all of it. And if God isn't surprised, we should be at peace. If God isn't shocked, then we shouldn't be worried. You're like, there's a lot to worry about right now, Mike. I know, but you need to look at Jesus and tell me that that doesn't make it better. You need to put your eyes on Christ, who is the author and finisher of your faith, and tell me that that doesn't strengthen you. Because if it doesn't, we need to sit down and go through the scriptures together. Church, we need to look to the Bible again. Let me challenge you this week. I'm not saying don't watch the news. Read more in your Bible than you read news. Just turn the tide this week. I want you to read more scripture than you read the news. I'm not telling you not to pay attention. We aren't to stick our heads in the sand and pretend like nothing's going on. You know, you stick your head in the sand, all over, and the only thing people see is your butt. You know, like it's just not, that's not, we, we, it's funny because you're like, you can't say that on camera. I could say worse. But here's the point. <laughs> the idea is, it's, <laughs> so many people like, I am unfollowing this church. You guys, I'm trying to get you to realize something. We are told to be ignorant, but what we're told to do is to see the news through God's perspective, to see the situations through God's point of view. And, and church, we get off on this sometimes. We start looking at the, the, the headlines and we start reading those like they're scripture. We start giving time to concern and, and social media like it's the gospel. It's not. In fact, it could be poisoning you. Spend more time in the Bible this week than you spend on social media. Spend more time in the Word of God and in prayer this week than you spend reading the news. I'm not saying don't do the other things at all. I'm saying let's flip that and put it in perspective. And I promise you, there's going to be a difference. You're like promising me, Mike, you're going to promise. Yes, if you give your heart to that, if you spend more time in the scripture, there's going to be a difference. I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe that. When we allow culture to depress us and break us down, we're forgetting that our Father in Heaven's plan is still rolling out and that's in His timing. I hope you realize that Jesus returning has, has not been delayed because of COVID. Right? Jesus is like, gosh, I was going to come back in June, and now, I mean, i got to wait for phase four. <laughs> He's not up there going, well, what am I going to do? God knows. It hasn't, the world's changing. God has not changed. He, set all, he will set all things right. He will be righteous. He will bring justice. That's the kingdom we're longing for. That's why all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because you can't thwart the effort of God. You can't thwart the plan of God. You are not changing his end game. He will do what he set his hand to do. Psalm 27 verses 1 through 3. In light of that, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, that's gross. My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. 
Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet will I be confident. You can't say that about anything in this world. You can say it about God. You can say it about the Lord. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Our confidence must not be shaken because we have been given empowered boldness. We've been given empowered boldness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Believers, born again, washed by the blood of Jesus, pluck up your courage. Stand up. God is still in control. Because we know that with full assurance, let us request of him what the early church requests here in verses 29 through 30. This should be our prayer. And now, Lord, consider their threats. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There is so much contained in these verses that we want to see happen. God's plan for his son was not deliverance from pain, but to suffer and to lay his life down. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was God's plan. What about us? How often am I getting consumed about God delivering me from a situation, delivering me from a trial? Even right now, in my own life, there are struggles and trials I just want him to deal with so I can be done with it. But it says this in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Isn't that how we act? You know, something bad happens. What? I never saw this coming. Hardship? Pain? My pastor promised me that it was smooth sailing. 40 years, I died peaceably in my sleep. That's, that, I mean, I, that, we act like that was like a guarantee. All right, how many years would you like? Uh, no, 40 more? Let's do 50. 50 more? Perfect living, no problems. Good, you're done. Sealed until the day of redemption. Scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say we're going to have an easy time of it. Don't be surprised. When the ordeal comes, don't be surprised when the world goes crazy. They don't know Jesus. And half of the church is going crazy too. They need to remember Jesus. You know, like we're like, wait a minute. I feel like I'm standing amongst crazy people when I'm in the church. Yeah, that's because they took their eyes off the Lord. You know, and we get that way too. You're like, oh, my high mighty. No, I go crazy too. Look at me. <laughs> I go nuts too. We need to look at Jesus. Instead, rejoice. I'll say it again. When the fiery trial happens, instead of freaking out, rejoice. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. Yay! My son does this all the time. He'll be watching me and my other son play a video game. Something bad happens. Yay! He'll just cheer. You know, one of us falls off a cliff in a game we're playing or something. You know, you're just mining it because it's Minecraft and it's healthy and it's good for kids. And you like cut through the ground and land in lava. Yay! <laughs> I'm not saying being stupid about it, but we can rejoice in fiery trials. Fiery trials, full circle. That, you understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> the other half of my followers, oh, Mike plays video games, I'm done with this. <laughs> you guys, instead of being surprised and being shocked at the testing, rejoice because you're sharing, 1 Peter 4.13, you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You're sharing in his suffering. 
We are meant to share through association and through experience so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. He says you can rejoice because you know that you are sharing in his suffering and you can rejoice even more and be filled with joy because his glory will be revealed. And when it's revealed, boy, howdy, that means cool. I'm really excited about that. I want his glory to be revealed. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, 1 Peter 4.14, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You ever talk to somebody and be like, I just want to be blessed by God. (laughs) Go out and get persecuted. You're blessed. Like, that's how it happens. (laughs) Like, because the spirit of glory of God rests on you. I'm not saying go out and seek persecution. Hey, call me a name because I'm, I'm saved. I'm not saying that. But when you do, you're blessed. Because that means you're sharing in a suffering. It means that you're Christian. Patrick, your Christianity is showing. That's exactly what it is. People are harassing you because of it. Peter. I'm going to have to edit this one bad. <laughs> Peter clarifies after that the difference between suffering for the Lord... After that section in chapter 4 that we just read, 1 Peter 4, that's kind of what I'm dissertating on. We're going to get back to Acts 4. He clarifies after that the difference between suffering for the Lord and suffering because we've done something to earn ourselves that suffering. Please make that distinction clear. If there is some suffering that we're in that's our own fault, make sure that you're not muddying the water with those two things. Draw a clear line. Things that I'm causing, I need to deal with. That's sin. But when I'm suffering for Christ's sake, then... Then we can rejoice. Then we are blessed. Some people will look at their lives and be like, I'm just going through so much right now. And I'm just, you know, trying to find a way to be blessed. It's like, dude, you're sitting in in, in a, a pit that you dug. You dug it out yourself. God expects you to stand up and get out. So it, it, we can't use our own, our own circumstances and just be like, oh, poor me. And be like, no, you got yourself there. Get yourself out. The Lord has given you two legs and two arms. And if you, if you dug the hole, you can get out of it. Unless you're too sort of like, no, you don't understand. This is really deep. Well, maybe you got to cry out to the Lord and ask for help out of that. Either way, he empowers you. But you understand our suffering for our own mistakes and our own issues and sitting in those things is our responsibility to recognize and repent of. But when we are suffering for Christ's sake, that's what Peter's talking about. It's an important distinction to make. Peter goes on at the close of chapter 4. In 1 Peter, and he says in verse 19, So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. That's a powerful verse. Those who suffer according to God's will, just like the church is praying about in Acts 4, that all the things that happened to Christ were according to God's will, according to his plan. So Peter then enforces the church, the body of Christ, to have the same mindset. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Don't stop doing good. Don't stop being kind. Don't stop being compassionate. Don't stop loving justice. Don't stop loving righteousness. Keep doing what's right. Galatians 6 verse 9. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing the right thing. In due season you will reap if you don't give up. If you continue pushing forward, boy, if we could just keep going, if we need that endurance, we will see God bring a harvest from what we're planting. Because those who sow according to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit righteousness. 
Galatians chapter six, read it later. Start that, you know, your, your flip flop of spending time, you know, watching news instead of watching, you know, reading news today, read Galatians six. It'll encourage you so much. I can't even, yeah, can't even describe it. I want us to consider this as we, as we contemplate what's going on here in Acts chapter four. Uh, I want to remind you to take special care to be sure that you're not creating your own trials and struggles. But if you're in a struggle and you're like, I did not create this situation, this just happened and I have no control over it. Here's my suggestion. We could be suffering according to God's will right now. And even more so in the near future. You're like, oh, this is the most encouraging message I've ever heard. Thanks, Mike. Like, we don't have enough going on in our world. It is encouraging. If this is the case, if we are suffering according to God's will, if we're going through a hardship because this is his plan, God's word is clear in 1 Peter 4.19. You entrust your soul to the faithful creator while doing good. Look at Acts 4.29. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Is my prayer... For endurance or deliverance. It's not a bad thing to ask God to deliver me. But it is bad to ask him to deliver me from what he has planned. And I need to know. I need to be submitted to his will. I need to spend time in prayer and know that what I'm going through is according to his plan or whether I've created it. And I need to repent of something. We desire for him to heal. We desire for him to perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus, as verse 30 states. None of us is like, Lord, less miracles, please. None of us is saying that. In fact, we're like, really be cool to see God do something crazy. We want to see that. Do you realize he does that as we go through trials and suffering? He does that as we're going through those things. And I would equate the two together and say that when there is no struggle in our lives, when there is no no suffering or persecution that we see those amazing works of God start to diminish because we're too busy trying to keep ourselves in the comfort zone. This is my prayer that he would allow me to continue to do what he has called me to do and entrust him to stretch out his hand as he so chooses, no matter what the consequences. We get so focused on him fixing our situations before we can get to work for him. We start looking at our situation going, well, God has to fix this first and then I'll give myself fully, right? I got to go deal with this first and then I can actually serve the Lord. God didn't put you here to be comfortable and God didn't say it would be easy. He said, all those who would come after me need to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. We get so focused on fixing things before we get to work for him. I'm so guilty of that type of thinking. When I'm situated here, then I'll be effective. Not scriptural at all. It's not biblical. I have to be rebuked for that. God heals the heart. The the circumstances and the situations of our lives may vary. But God has healed the heart. Therefore, we must move. And he will qualify us for what he has called us to. What if God's power is being made perfect through my weakness? Like it was for Paul. That's what the Lord told Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My power is made perfect through your weakness. Paul was like, oh, well, I'll stop asking for you to take this physical thing away from me. Then I'm just going to rejoice in it. 
Boy, that's an easy thing for us to go, yeah, go you, Paul, good job. Now accept that for yourself. That's a lot harder, isn't it? I'm like, no, I'm okay with other people not being removed from physical suffering. You know, like I'll just pray over them and say, like, just power through. But when I'm going through it, this is where we need to mourn with those who mourn and be sympathetic. Because it's easy for us to go, oh, I'm praying for you, I hope you do. But we're not in that situation. We're not suffering like they are. And do you know what makes us stronger as a body? When we understand and go through things that other people are struggling through. And then we have this association. Man, this is hard. But we can get through it together. It's important that we share in each other's hurt. That we share in each other's suffering. How does God respond to a prayer of his church like this that says, allow us to continue Embolden us to keep going. I'll read it again just because it's here. Lord, consider the threats and grant your servants that we may speak your word with boldness. Give us the strength to keep going no matter what the cost. How does God respond? Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. God answers. There's three responses to this. Three things that take place. One, God shakes the room. That's pretty cool. I wish that when I got done praying, the room would shake and it not be an earthquake. Or maybe it just be like a really well-timed one. We had that happen once at youth group. It was awesome. <laughs> the kids had a lot of respect for me that night. I talked about God shaking the room. I said, he could literally shake it right now and an earthquake happened. <laughs> so, you know, coincidence? I think not. So here's the thing. God shakes the room here. And it's, this is one, one theologian, Pearson, said this. The presence of the Holy Spirit was so wonderfully manifested that even dead walls felt the power of the spirit of life. Matter responded to spirit. That's what I want. I want matter responding to spirit. That's powerful. That's the first thing that, that happens. There's three responses to this prayer. First, God shakes the room. The next thing is they're filled with the Holy Spirit. God then fills them with the Spirit. We know they're filled with the Spirit on Pentecost, but being filled with the Holy Spirit is not just a one-time experience. Yes, the Spirit lives within us, but we are empowered by the Spirit for specific tasks. And when we pray and ask God to empower us for a specific task, there, will, there can be, according to His will, a special pouring out of the Spirit for that work. This is a fresh filling. And we should always remember that we need to continuously immerse ourselves in the spirit of God. Look at the specific task that God has given you and ask him to empower you for that. Lord, I know you already live within me. This is not getting born again again. What this is, is being empowered by him for the specific task. The third thing that happens in response to this prayer is they continue. God answers by empowering them to do exactly what they asked to do. God answers the prayer, he confirms the prayer, the Holy Spirit fills them, and they continue on in boldness. Note that this boldness is not a result of their own determination to be bold. Their boldness stems from the empowering of God. Their ability, their own personal ability, is not in play here. God's empowering qualifies them for the calling. And so that's a very important thing to remember. You guys, as we wrap this up, these are things that I want to see our church doing on a regular basis. And by church, I mean, I want to do it corporately when we're together, but it's so important that we as individual believers in Christ, who he loves individually, that we are asking God to do this in our lives regularly. 
We'll do it when we get together. But you guys need to be spending significant time with the Lord, asking for his empowering for the situations that are in your life. There are so many things going on in our church right now. There are a lot of issues that are heartbreaking. There are people that are weeping in our church right now. There are people who are suffering in our church right now. And I just want to encourage you, first of all, cry out to God. Second of all, you're not alone. You have us. We're with you. And if you feel like you're isolated and alone, you're not. I am a phone call away. Our staff is a phone call away. There are so many people in this church that want to make meals for each other, that want to come and visit and just spend time with each other. Let us be a part of the strengthening that God has for you for this season. And I know that there's people in our church that are really hurting. You're not alone. You don't have to do this alone. We're with you. The Father's plan for the Son was that he would be a sacrifice for us. What does God expect of us as believers? Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Did you notice the living sacrifice part? Just like Jesus. God sent his son to be a sacrifice. God has us here to be living sacrifices. Our Father expects us to follow in the Savior's footsteps. This willingness, this submission to God's divine plan for our lives is what we are here to live out. It's spirit-filled courage. That's the only kind of courage I want. It's spirit-empowered courage. It's strength in the midst of fleshly weakness. It's boldness in the face of adversity. It's love in response to raging hatred. My prayer for each and every one of us is that we would be able to echo the words of Richard Baxter when we get to the end of our lives. And he said this, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. May we be a church who preaches God's truth as people who are dying because we are to people who are dying. We have been spiritually renewed, but we recognize the world around us is hellbound without Christ. Let us preach as dying men to dying men. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we take some time to worship you, in our hearts, God, I pray that we would understand the distinction of worshiping you, Lord, not just through praise, but through action, through words, through heart set. God, that we would have your mind. We've been told, oh, I've been told so many times this week how to think. I've been told so many times in the last couple of days what my mindset should be. And Lord, I pray that we would look to your word and establish from you how we should think. The authority, God, that you have has been diminished by our culture. We formulate so many opinions. God, this is why we're in the mess that we're in. People not loving each other. People not taking care of each other. The church trying to be relevant rather than being salt and light. 
So God, convict us of these things. Make us salt and light. Jesus, just like you are. Lord, as we just, for a moment, praise you and, and recognize that the powers that be, Lord, they are man-established power. You've given us the leadership that we have. But God, you are king. You are the sovereign one. And we live to please you. Help us to align with your word on how to do that. To live out what we see. In graciousness, in kindness, in truth. 